Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone, this is Adam from Team Overdrive, and today I'm joined by Marie Benedict, author of several historical novels, the latest of which, The Other Einstein, we'll be diving into today. It is a library journal fall pick. It is a library reads, uh, I want to say October pick. Yep, that's the next month of our, of, our, of our year. It's a Canadian Lone Star October pick, and it's also one of Pop Sugar's fall book picks as well. So first off, Marie, congratulations, and thank you for joining us today. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. But I want to say a big shout-out to the librarians out there who have shown so much love for the other Einstein. I am incredibly appreciative of their reading it, enjoying it, and, and voting for it. See, that's a smart author. You just made a whole bunch of fans right off the bat. That's that's a really job well done by you. <laughs> so before we dive into the other Einstein, something I noticed when I was going through your bio, your career arc is a little unique. You didn't start off being a writer. Is that correct? That is correct. I actually started out as a commercial litigator in New York City, one of everybody's favorite people, of course. <laughs> And so how did you get from that to being a writer? Well, um, let's, let me say, I, without going too far back into my childhood history, I was always a voracious reader, as I'm sure most of your listeners are. Mm-hmm. And um, I always, even when I was practicing law, I always knew there was something else that I wanted to do, but I had never really envisioned myself as a writer. I didn't think I could do what all those authors that I admired so much did. But um, so I would duck out for my long hours as a lawyer um, and take classes in history and art and symbology. And then one day, it's just sort of an idea for a book came for me. And I wrote, you know, on the down low for about eight years. And then I finally told people that I was trying it. And that was sort of the beginning of my of my change. And so when I'm trying to think how I can ask this, I'm trying to wrap my head around the fact that you spent an entire day being a lawyer, which should have very long hours, and then you would yeah. take classes in the evening to kind of, I guess, round yourself off a little bit more? That's that's pretty impressive. Well, it was more like I would duck out for, like, NYU um, <laughs> and Columbia had these educa- uh, classes for adults, and so I would duck out. They had them about 5 or 6 o'clock, which was sadly like the middle of my work day. Oh, my goodness. I would duck out, go to my class, then come back and work till like midnight. So that was pretty much my life for a long time. So it seems like you might not sleep too much. <laughs> well, I certainly didn't during those days, that's for sure. <laughs> all right. So something that I do really love about the books that you write is they all are about these fantastic historical women whose stories haven't been properly told. So what sparked the idea in your mind to start writing these stories? Um, well, I've always been fascinated with untold stories from the past. Um, I always had this vision of myself as a child that I would be an archaeologist and I would kind of unlock some 
hidden secret. Um, but the, the actual um, sort of seed for telling these different stories about women began also in my childhood when I read this book called The Mists of Avalon, which most people have not read, but which is sort of this fantastical retelling of the Arthurian legend mm-hmm. from the point of view of the women in the story. And it really started me on this lifelong path of of realizing and trying to uncover the other voices that existed alongside the voices that we were more familiar with. Um, and so all of the work that I've done has been trying to kind of unearth, almost like an archaeologist, unearth and excavate these voices from from the past where they've where they've been forgotten. Okay, and then we're going to jump into some more of these females in, in history that you've written about and maybe will write about. But let's let's start talking about the other Einstein first, because mm-hmm. I, I'll admit, I before I jumped into your book and found out that I was going to get to speak with you, I didn't really know much about this story at all. So can you maybe give our readers and listeners an idea of what the other Einstein is about? Sure, I'll give you a quick, quick synopsis. But before I do, I want to say the... What you just said is the reason why I wanted to, to write this book. I wanted to tell this, a story that I really felt like more people should know. And what the Einstein is about, it's the story of Maleva Merrick, um, who sort of made this heroic ascent from what I kindly call the misogynist backwater of Eastern <laughs> Europe in the, 1900, in the late 1800s. Mm-hmm. And at this time, girls were not even permitted to attend high school. And she went on to become one of the first females to attend um, a university physics program. And then she ultimately became the first wife of one of her classmates, which was Albert Einstein. And the book really explores this. It's really her story. It's not his story. But it explores the climb that she made from really humble beginnings to um, to really this this peak, this um, academic pinnacle, and it then goes on to explore the roles the role that she may or may not have played in his early theories, which were some of his most critical theories. Mm-hmm. And it also explores the issues of how she was she had to marginalize her own scientific aspirations in favor of his as time went on. And you know, the more I explored Maleva and the issues she faced, the more I realized that. Some of these are issues that really still resonate today that people still, women still deal with. And I think that's such a good point. It's, un- it's incredibly unfortunate because, uh, you know, this is, you know, 1905-ish when this story mm-hmm. took place and the fact that the women are still facing a lot of these, you know, issues and gender equality and, and things like that. I-, I think bringing to light these stories, not, you know, just Malevo's, but all of the stories that you're bringing to light hopefully can spark a conversation where people can start to realize, you know, it's, it's always blown my mind that anyone would be so sexist as to assume like, oh, well, that person's a female, so they can't possibly know as much as I know. I'm actually the complete opposite, or if I meet a woman who's doing something that I'm doing, I just, in my mind, I'm like, I assume that they're better at it than I am, which... Wow, I- that's, a, that's a fantastic... <laughs> Turn around in some ways, I have to say. But, you know, you're right. It is, it's so disheartening to learn how those attitudes are embedded in our culture and in the scientific community, even today, in ways we don't even realize. Mm-hmm. It never fails to surprise me, you know, when I'm at a book event of some sort and somebody has read or knows about the story in The Other Einstein. They always have these stories to offer me that happened recently to women scientists. So it's really interesting that it's it's really a theme and a 
entirely. I was just going to say, so obviously back during the, you know, Albert and Maleva's time, the, the, it seemed like the science world was very much a boys club, but it seems like you're saying the it's still very much that way today. Is that accurate? Um, well, I have not done a scientific study of sure. it, but I will say that I am constantly barraged by anecdotes yeah. from current day, um, for modern day people, maybe not, maybe not even today specifically, but in the past 25 years, mm-hmm. there's countless examples of, um, you know, situations where that sort of viewpoint and the support throughout the scientific community seems to be more focused on men. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's the, the reason behind the movement of a lot of these wonderful organizations that have sprung up for women in science, like Girls Who Code, or there's um, a great group um, that we're involved with called the Rwanda Girls Initiative, which sets up STEM schools for girls in Africa. And, you know, so it, it's, you know, that, that sort of disparity has given rise to organizations that are trying to equal the playing field. That is actually, before we go any further, I just want to give you a chance to maybe share that listeners. Is there a website or anywhere that people can learn more about that? Because that's, that's amazing. I would love to kind of give you a platform to, to let people well, know. Well, you can look on my Facebook page because I'm always posting about either interesting posts about historical women or about current issues mm-hmm. about girls in science, women in science. Um, I have not quite honestly found one other specific website that in which, um, you know, that really calls together all that information and provides resources for people. I've kind of done that myself. Sure. Um, and I follow, there's a lot of what, like Amy Poehler, Smart Girls, that's yes. more for teenagers and younger girls. But I haven't found something like that specifically for adult women. So I try and kind of comb through stuff and feature things where, you know, these issues are really brought to light, whether they're historical or current. All right. Well, for our listeners, if you go into the um, information about this episode, uh, we'll make sure that we have all the links that you can find Marie and her Facebook page and, and get all that information because I don't want that to go. Um, I don't want that to get lost in the ether somewhere. So absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's, it's one of the um, wonderful um, things that's come out of the other Einstein is is it sort of become a rallying point around which people are talking about these issues about women in science mm-hmm. in a way that um, I, I'm, I'm sure has existed in the past, but it is, it's, I'm much more immersed in. <laughs> right. Um, and then for readers who might not be familiar with your works, uh, how much of the story um, is, is complete fact and how much might be uh, a little bit of, you know, fiction to kind of create sure. the story in and of itself? Um, well, this whole notion of what is historical fiction is, um, you know, it's always kind of open for debate and people have different viewpoints about what should and shouldn't, uh, what it, what it, what it should or shouldn't look like. In fact, it's funny, there's a debate going on between two psychologists in, of all places, the, the magazine Psychology Today, about the other Einstein, asking, you know, what, what should, what it really should or shouldn't look like. But I myself am a crazy researcher. I mean, that sort of comes from my natural inclination. Um, in, in looking at historical information and also my background as a lawyer. Right. So I really like to dig as deep as I can, immerse myself not just in secondary accounts from history, but also as much firsthand original information that I can find. And when I started off um, taking a look at the story of Maleva, I realized that while there were volume upon volume about Albert Einstein <laughs> specifically, she kind of always felt like a footnote in his story. Um, she wasn't featured prominently, or if so, it was a, a very small percentage of the, of the tome that might describe his life. 
And um, so I called together what I could from secondary sources, and then I started looking for more original material. And where the story really came to life for me were, came through her letters. Um, there was a cache of letters disc- um, found between Einstein and Maleva. It was discovered from in a family member's hands in the 1980s. And it is these torrid letters between the two of them from the late 1890s until about 1905. And you really get a look. Um, and again, my story is her story. It's not his story. But mm-hmm. um, you really get a look at what's going on between them, what's going on in her mind. I got a sense of her voice, her worries, her concern, her scientific fascinations, the way they collaborated. Um, so I tried to dig as deep as I could into the facts. But I'm not a biographer. I'm I'm I tell, I'm a fiction writer. <laughs> so what I like to do is kind of create um, a historical framework for the story, and where there are gaps is where my story comes in, is where the fiction lies. And what I tra- and I'm a logical person, so I try and draw logical assumptions mm-hmm. um, from what I know, from you know point A to point B, and what I don't know in between. So absolutely, there's uh, a lot of fiction in um, The Other Einstein, but there's also a tremendous amount of fact. Mm -hmm. And gosh, I invite anyone who reads it and is more interested in the topic, they're not going to find a ton of biographies on Malay or anything, but to look at their letters is a beautiful thing. It really is. Her letters to him, her letters to her friends, and they're all on Princeton's website. It's called the Einstein Papers. They've recently... Um, posted a whole website which had almost every single writing by and about him. That is amazing. And and speaking of doing yeah. research, I want to let you know, I actually discovered this. I don't know if you're aware of it, um, but while I was kind of looking up some more stuff about your book and Maleva, mm-hmm. um, here in Cleveland, where we where we live, I live personally, you're, you're just down the road like we were talking about, not, not too, too far. far. Yeah. Um, so we actually have these beautiful cultural gardens that are kind of all throughout our city. Um, and each one of them, there's like 31 of them, they're dedicated to a different nationality. And then, so basically that nationality, cause Cleveland is a very international city, um, right. that whatever nationality that garden is, the, the people of, you know, of that, uh, culture kind of put money together and they can do whatever they want with it. And the Serbian garden this summer actually unveiled a statue and a bus dedicated to Maleva. Um, no so. Way. Yeah, so she has not been forgotten in our Serbian community, and it's actually it's right next to the bust of uh, Nikola Tesla. So she's in awesome. great company. So since you're just down the road, if you wanted to come up to Cleveland, um, I have to. I have to make a um, do a tour to come and see it. Yeah. That is amazing. I was it. It literally was unveiled. I want to say at like the end of June this year. So it's brand new and it's beautiful. They did this whole. A ceremony, and they had the Serbian, uh, the the delegate of, of from Serbia, the, rep- the Serbian representative um, on behalf, you know, kind of representing in, in the United States. He was here, and um, yeah, there's there's if you look it up, uh, there's a whole I'm bunch of videos. Definitely gonna go look it up. Yeah, I was very excited when I saw that because I was like, I wonder if Marie knows this. So it's. <laughs> I really, truly had no idea. I, I, do you have any idea how they chose her? Because I feel like she's just so underrepresented. Um, the best I could come up with from doing my research is it just seems like because she is from Serbia originally mm-hmm. um, and kind of along the lines of what, what you've been saying about her story is not a lot of people know about her. And so 
I, I think they just kind of wanted to shine a light on it. So there is, there's this nice memorial and it's in these, these parks are be- in and of themselves. These parks are beautiful, especially kind of in the fall time of year when we are very fortunate as you are in Pennsylvania to kind of have the, the, the leaves changing colors and everything. So, well, you know what, Adam? I'm thinking a road trip is definitely well, in order. Well, I know someone in Cleveland who would be happy to show you around if you come <gasps> on down. All right. Yeah, I'd be we happy to. Talk about this. That is so exciting. Thank you for sharing. Sure. And so not to change gears a little bit, but I know that you're also working on another pretty important person's life currently. So being a library company, I would like to maybe if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on next as much as you can, because I know it's something you're currently researching, but I will give you the floor. Oh, thank you so much. Well, um, as you know, my, my books and certainly the books I'm working on going forward are, they're not sequels or anything, but they are narratively connected. They're all, um, sort of untold stories about women. And the next book I'm working on, which will be out in about a year, um, is called Carnegie's Maid. And it's the story of Andrew Carnegie as he's making, it's not his story. It's actually the story of his mother's lady's maid with whom he has a relationship. And it's the story of his rise in Pittsburgh in the 1860s and 70s, sort of as he's becoming uh, the richest man in the world, although he's not quite there yet. So it's a very formative time in the Gilded Age and in America's industrialization. But what the book really focuses on, which is really important for the libraries of this world, it focuses on a moment in time, the building of a moment in time in 1868, in which he made a private manifesto to himself in which he committed to give away whatever money he made during the course of his lifetime. He never told anybody he wrote that. He kept it with him always. It was discovered when he died. And um, he kept to that promise. It was a moment in time in which his life changed, and it truly set him on the path to becoming the world's first philanthropist, which also, of course, includes becoming the world's um, really instigator and founder of most of the world's free libraries. And, um, you know, he's really instrumental nationwide, of course, but also internationally in creating libraries all across the world and funding them. Um, so the story, the story talks about how he became that person, how he went from this ruthless businessman into this philanthropist, which gave rise to all of these libraries. And it all starts with this relationship with his mother's ladies' mate. And I will say, being a library company, he is very instrumental in the reason that, you know, we exist here at all in Overdrive. So I am right. eager to read that when it does come out. I'm very excited about oh, that. Good. Yeah, it's really, you know, I, I think I mentioned to you before we, you started taping. I'm myself, I'm really involved in libraries. Mm-hmm. I'm on a bunch of board committees for the Carnegie Libraries of Pittsburgh. And every time I'm sitting at a meeting, which was just this week, I'm sitting in his boardroom underneath a painting of him (laughs) sitting in a chair he probably sat on and I have access to wonderful information that um, not just the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh but libraries all over Pittsburgh have called together specifically about him so given that I grew up in Pittsburgh although I've lived in many places he has been um, a specter over my whole life so it's so exciting to dig into this sort of unknown period of time in his life but to talk about it from a female point of view and to talk about how women, not just his mother's ladies made, but his mother as well, influenced his transformation. And then speaking of libraries, I always love asking everyone I talk to, and since you're very involved in them, I assume you'll have a good 
uh, story about this, but do you have like a first or a favorite memory of maybe a time in a library when you were growing up by any chance? Well, um, I would have to say, even though this wasn't the part of Pittsburgh I grew up in, the main Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, which is the first one, was not the first one that Andrew Carnegie founded, but it's one of the first ones, and it's a wonderful historic structure. Um, I remember going there when I was a little girl with my grandmother, who grew up in that neighborhood, and my, my aunt, who was a, um, she was a nun, but she was also an English professor at Carlo, which is a college also in Oakland, which is very close to this, um, this uh, particular museum, this particular library. And I can remember going there to the children's department with them, just the three of us. And libraries have really always, and bookstores also, but libraries in particular have always been sort of a special place of refuge for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I definitely think that that's, those early library moments were where it all began. And do you remember by any chance the books you used to read when you were when you were younger? Well, um, it's kind of weird. Well, you're going to think I'm weird, but um, <laughs> I, I could read <laughs> that I'm telling you this story, but I could read extremely well when I was extremely young. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a fluky thing that I was always able to do. And so when I was like four years old, I was reading like novels. It was kind of strange. So I was always, it was always a struggle to find books that were appropriate for my <laughs> age, but were at my reading level. And right. actually my, my aunt, who was the English professor who used to take me to the Carnegie Library, she was the one who would find things for me. And where sort of a sweet spot for me would be fables and legends. Oh yeah. And I think, you know, because they're, they're more complicated, sophisticated materials. Um, they were at my reading, they were at my reading level, some of the more complicated ones, but, um, but they weren't inappropriate for me. And I think that she fed that kind of love of legend and lore from a very young age. And that, that has really stayed with me for my whole life. Yeah, absolutely. I could imagine. Um, so when you're, when you're doing your writing, are you the type of person who keeps a very strict writing schedule, like, you know, nine to five or eight to four or whatever it might be, or do you just kind of write whenever the creativity hits? Wow. Um, boy, I wish, well, first of all, I don't have the luxury of time to read, to write <laughs> the, 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 the muse strikes, you know? Sure. Um, I have deadlines, which I'm lucky to have deadlines. And so I do have to have a fairly, a fairly strict schedule. But that said, I have two young boys. So my schedule, my creativity schedule is kind of geared around their, um, their schedule. Right. So each day it's a little different. But each day I do car, I do have a, um, a pretty detailed, um, strong outline of what I'm writing and how it's going to go. And I try to stick to it, but I would definitely say I'm a mix. I'm sure you get this question a lot about whether you're a pantser or a um, plotter. <laughs> yeah. And I'm definitely a mix of pantser and plotter. You know, I definitely have a pretty strict outline. I definitely have time dedicated, although it varies from day to day. To day. Um, but then I also like to keep a certain amount of spontaneity to see where the story is going to take me. Because mm-hmm. once you get um, really immersed in your characters, they sometimes do things that, that you hadn't planned for them originally. And that the way you might get from one part of your story to the next isn't the way that you intended. And that is really an exciting moment. And if you don't leave the door open for that, then the story will lose the, the spontaneity that, that it could otherwise have. And so do you have any kind of tips or tricks for, um, you know, maybe aspiring writers? I've had a few people tell me, you know, they'll, they'll leave a thought kind of not complete so that when they come back the next day, 
uh, you know, they have a place to start. Or like for me, I kind of always have a notebook with me with me just mm -hmm. because my brain tends to work at times I don't think it's going to. And so I'm like, right. I need to write this right. down. I need to write this down immediately. So do you have any tips or anything like that for someone who might be trying to become a writer? Um, my, a tip that, um, that someone gave to me, a fellow writing friend, which has really helped me. It's kind of weird again. Um, but I have, because I, you know, write from home and I have the distraction of children around, sometimes I'm multitasking when I shouldn't be. And it's hard for me to switch mm -hmm. from one task to the task of writing. And my friend, who always has an interest in all things science, told me she had read a study, um, in some neuroscience journal that said, if you associate over time a particular piece of music with a particular activity, it's easier to make the transition into that activity. And so I decided to try and apply it to writing. And so I would pick out a particular piece of music to play while I was writing um, a particular book. Uh -huh. And I found that just transitioning into that music, which very often was I wasn't even truly listening to, it was more of a background right. music, um, it allowed my brain to shift into the story that I was writing right where I left off. And so for me, that was one of the best odd kind of writing tips that I've ever received, but it's the one that has allowed me, especially in the environment in which I work in my home, has allowed me to function more efficiently. That is so fascinating. Obviously, we're on the phone, and I, this is a podcast, and so no one can see me anyway, but my jaw like dropped when you said that it was like a oh, light really? one. Because I, same thing, I wear a lot of hats here, so I'm always doing, I'm always multitasking, and I feel like I'm always shifting from one thing to the next without actually finishing a thought, and I have never thought, and I'm always listening to music, but I never thought about that. I'm going to try that. That, sound, that sounds like such a good idea. Well, thank you. I hope it I mean, it really works for me, and honestly, sometimes I... In a particular album, I listen to always with a particular book. And so after that book is over, I never want to listen to that music <laughs> again. But I, for me, it has been really effective in making the transition to have almost like a soundtrack that is associated just with that particular activity. And, um, and it allows me to make the transition pretty, pretty well. All right. I'm, so now I'm just curious and you, and you can plead the fifth if you don't, if you don't want to answer this, but is it, yeah. is it classical music? Is it, what type of music do you associate with writing a book? That's a great question, and I have to tell you, it varies. Um, so, for example, um, with uh, the other Einstein, I listened to, in part, um, for a part of it, I listened to the soundtrack from the movie The Hours, uh -huh. which is music by Philip Glass. So it wasn't really classical or anything, but it was it was edgy and kind of sciencey in sure. its own way. And with Carnegie's made. Um, it, I'm listening to Mumford and Sons. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it would really go with the time period, but it has a Celtic kind of feel oh, yeah, to for it. Sure. And my main character is from Ireland, and um, but I recently just switched over to some like Glenn Gould's classical pieces for for a section of it. So sometimes I'll just listen to a bunch of stuff until something feels right. So when you're doing like the obviously the the soundtrack is. Um, is instrumental and the classical music is instrumental. Mumford at, has lyrics in it. And I, right. I struggle to listen to music that have lyrics in it when I'm writing. So is it just kind of like you have to focus on it just being background noise or do you choose the instrumental versions? I know that we're way off topic now, but this is fascinating to That's me. Quite all right. Um, you know what? After a while, I don't hear the lyrics anymore, mm -hmm. but uh, I hear the music. I, you know what I mean? I love this so, so much. <laughs> um, the, the, the 
sound that kind of goes along with Mumford is the sound I, this is going to, now I'm really getting off topic, but when I write, I see the scenes in my mind like a movie. Yeah. And not everybody, not everybody does that. And so to me, I have a soundtrack to my movie reel, right? Mm -hmm. So I have to find the, the soundtrack that fits those, those scenes in my mind. And just like a, in a soundtrack, when you're watching the movie, you're not necessarily hearing the lyrics. Right. That's kind of how it works for me. Okay. So the lyrics don't really distract me. But that said, for part of the other Einstein, I was fortunate enough to see Hamilton in New York oh, with my, the original cast. That was one of going to be one of my questions. I felt like we were going to get to it. I love Broadway so much, and I haven't gotten to see Hamilton yet, but <gasps> continue. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> well, I had this. I was so lucky. It was my birthday, and I was in New York for a work, and I lived in New York City for 12 years, and so I have a lot of good friends there. And one of my friends surprised me with tickets. And this was before <laughs> it was super, super popular. Uh-huh. This was um, about a year ago. And that, you know, of course, Hamilton is a historical retelling, which is what I like to do. Right. From a totally different viewpoint. Um, and that's what I, I felt like he was, because uh, I saw Lin-Manuel performance. Yep. Yes, you I did. Felt like he was pro- I saw he, uh, he was performing that just for me, of course. Right, uh, of course. The entire thing. Yeah, because, <sighs> of course, he was. And But that musical just spoke to me, because it really spoke to me about that moment of insight that I feel that I know he felt when he was reading that biography mm-hmm. about um, Alexander Hamilton. And um, i that's how I get ideas, is reading just nonfiction and things come to me. And I, I felt like that whole musical was about that moment of insight that I have when I get an idea for a book. So I did listen to that for part of the other Einstein. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the one situation where I did get a little bit bogged down in right. the lyrics. If you know the lyrics, they're like I, so addictive. Oh, I, I know just about all of the lyrics. It's actually... The, okay. Uh, two things. One, there's no way you could possibly know this, but it's a running joke between all of my coworkers who will join me on the podcast sometimes because I will bring up Hamilton. I'll like try to shoehorn Hamilton into an episode. Like, it's, it, you know what? It's possible to do any topic. There's something on Hamilton. Yeah. I and, feel like. But every time I do it, I'm just getting like my co-host to just, she just stares at me like, really? Again? And so it's, that's, that's the first part, which is a running joke. And two, because you were kind enough to let us know what some of the music is, I will, I will, I will up the nerd scale and let you know that when I'm writing, I will listen to, especially this time of year, I will listen to the instrumental version of the Nightmare Before Sound, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas soundtrack. So I am just as nerdy. You- uh, you are a kindred spirit. Let's not call it nerdy, although I consider that a compliment. Exactly, it is. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll go with kindred spirit. I love it. That's awesome. I'm going to have to check that out. That's a possible one for me. What do you write? So I do a lot of our, I, I write a lot of our blogs and a lot, I do all of our social media. So I'm writing a lot of just like short snippy posts and mm-hmm. things like that. And if I'm freelancing or anything like that, um, I, I will use the very, cause the, I like to, I'm more of a, kind of like paint a picture, kind of a storytelling type of a writer. I don't really write our press releases or anything like that because I'm too long-winded. Um, but the Nightmare Before Christmas soundtrack is very kind of like sing-songy, and I feel like even just the music itself is kind of like taking you on a journey, so I can kind of do that mm-hmm. with, with so my words. So basically, you're already doing what I suggested you do. Yeah, I guess I didn't even realize it. Wow, this is... See, this I'm learning more about just myself now, I think, than I am even about the other Einstein and you. This is a lot of fun. Wonderful. <laughs> Anytime you'd like to be psychoanalyzed, <laughs> All right, so when you're not writing and seeing the best musical that I haven't ever seen, how do you like to spend oh. your time? 
Well, listening to the Hamilton soundtrack, of uh, course. Of course. I mean, I mean, do I even have to say that? My poor seven-year-old knows literally every lyric. <laughs> it's pretty pathetic. Even the ones that really aren't appropriate for a seven-year-old to say. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's that. But we, um, I mean, what I like to do, my, I read, obviously, which mm-hmm. everybody does. And I have two small boys, so we are always doing different outside activities. Hiking golfing, skiing, you name it. I've got to keep them busy. So that that is where a lot of my time is gone. But if I have my brothers, and my whole family enjoys this, we travel a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I'm going to be on doing a pretty extensive book tour over the next two months. And so they're going to join me on part of it, which is really fun. Well, that's great. Um, for some of the more fun and different uh, locations. But that, that does occupy a lot of our downtime planning for trips. And, um, and again, that's where I get a lot of... Um, ideas for stories is from travel and so when you're reading do you even have time for like leisure reading or is it my is it mainly kind of the research stuff you obviously enjoy the research parts too but do you read like novels and and other writers constantly constantly and in fact reading other writers i mean i have to be careful what i'm reading while i'm actually in the act of writing because you just have to be careful um but i'm so inspired by by phenomenal writers who write very differently than I do and write about very different topics. Just, you know, the actual art of writing um, is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And to be inspired by people who are, you know, phenomenal writers is is part of what I have to do to be a writer, I feel like. Um, so, yeah, I do. I read uh, an enormous amount, a huge amount. And I will say, you know, going to a lot of the book conferences that I go to, I get to see and read. I get to meet a lot of wonderful writers, but I also get to read a lot of their books as they're coming out. And Mm -hmm. that's really exciting as well. Or be on panels with them and actually talk with them about it. So I love that part among many parts, but I love that part of what I do. I will uh, add to that sentiment. Get, one of my favorite parts of my job is all of the advanced reader copies that pile up on right? my desk. It's the absolute best. I mean, I have to say, ARCs always come home with me. Oh from yeah, all my conferences. Oh, we're a di- and, we're a digital book company, but all I have so many ARCs of physical books. It's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just that's like a that to me is like a huge bonus part of what I do, and it it really is like research of a different kind from my perspective. I mean, I spend a lot of time doing historical research, but I consider reading other just really good writers to be part of what I do as well. And, um, and I'm lucky that I get to do that. Absolutely. Okay. I like to end each of our podcasts with nine questions that are kind of rapid fire. I like to call them the nerd nine. So, Oh, I love it. Yeah. So no deep thought on these, just kind of the first thing that comes to your mind. So the first one is what's the last book that you read? Oh, I just finished. Oh my gosh. What's the name of it? I finished two simultaneously. Homegoing by Yag Yassi. Mm-hmm. And um, I have the Knicks on my nightstand, but I haven't <gasps> read that. Oh, Ian Pears, Arcadia. Mm-hmm. So you have the Knicks by Nathan Hill on your nightstand? On my nightstand, yeah. He was one of the people I got to interview before anyone knew about him, and he is wonderful. You're going to love that. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, great. He, yeah, well, That's been on my pile for a while. I just kind of worked my way through it, but I've really been wanting to read yeah, that. You should dive into that soon. So, Okay, what's your favorite place to read? Um, my, the beach. Okay. What is your guilty pleasure? Mine is like, I post so many pictures of my dogs on Instagram. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Love that you do that. <laughs> Probably reading is also my guilty pleasure. Reading when I'm really not supposed to be, supposed to be doing something else. 
What's one place you'd like to travel that you haven't yet been to? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I've tra- I've been fortunate enough that I travel. I've traveled very widely. Mm-hmm. Um, Greece. Nice. What is your favorite holiday? Thanksgiving, probably, because mm-hmm. I love the fall. Sure. What's your favorite movie? I love The Piano by Jane Campion. Mm-hmm. Cats or dogs? Both. <laughs> I will accept it. Uh, favorite food? I love Thai food. Good Thai food. Oh, Thai food is so good. And then the last question, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would you pick? Oh, gosh. I might pick, I mean, aside from people I normally get to. Uh, yeah, sure. Someone you wouldn't normally. I mean, get to I love to have dinner with my husband and my children, but mm-hmm. um, I would probably pick my aunt Terry. Mm-hmm. She was, um, as I mentioned to her earlier, she was a nun and she was an English professor at Carlo, and she was so instrumental in um, who I am today. And she passed away before I kind of transformed from lawyer to writer. And I would love to have the opportunity to tell her how much she meant to me. That's a perfect answer. And then I have one last question for you. What do you hope people take away from reading your books? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, I hope that people will look at the world around them and at history with fresh eyes. I hope they'll realize that the stories that they're being told, whether current or past, have so many other perspectives and layers that they might not have ever considered and that it's really one of our jobs as people to look for those other perspectives. I think that is a perfect answer. Marie, thank you so much for joining me. This was a blast. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) Thank you so much, Adam. Honestly, I really appreciate it. And I hope to see you over at that Maleva statue. Oh, we're going to go visit it together. I'm excited to see it. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com. And our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 